Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode, Keys to the Rett Syndrome Communication Guidelines. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Dr. Bellotta works as an adjunct professor and SLP director. She co-authored the Rett Syndrome Communication Guidelines, and serves as a consultant to the International Rett Syndrome Foundation. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. Her non-financial disclosure is that she is a member of the advisory board of Monmouth University's Program for Research and Support for Rett Syndrome. Our learning objectives for this episode are to describe the defining characteristics of Rett Syndrome and the typical progression of symptoms, to identify the main challenges for SLPs working with individuals with Rett syndrome and their families, and to outline the guidelines published by the International Rett Syndrome Foundation for SLPs working with people with Rett syndrome. And now it is our pleasure to introduce you to Teresa Bartolotta, PhD, CCC, SLP. Dr. Bartolotta is an adjunct professor of speech-language pathology at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is the director of speech-language pathology at Tender Ones Therapy Services in Dacula, Georgia. She co-authored the recently published Rett Syndrome Communication Guidelines and serves as consultant on communication to the International Rett Syndrome Foundation. She is also a member of the advisory board to Monmouth University's program for research and support for Rett syndrome in West Long Branch, New Jersey. Most importantly, Teresa is mother to Lisa, a young adult with Rett syndrome. Thank you for coming to talk with us this evening. We are so excited to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Mary Beth. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you and also to talk with your listeners about this topic that I'm so passionate about. Well, you are passionate and it is so impressive and appreciated everything that you have done for people with Rett syndrome. So let's dive into this. Tell us about your experience as an SLP and as a mother that led you on a journey to specialize in helping people with Rett syndrome communicate. Great. So like many SLPs, before my daughter was born, I'd never heard of Rett syndrome. And I actually was specializing in pediatrics and worked with a lot of children with complex communication disorders. And then we had our second child and she was born typically and she started talking and just was just developing as expected. And then when she was about 16 months old, she slowed down in her development, stopped using words, stopped waving high and by and started to have some unusual repetitive behaviors that caused us a lot of concern. And then we went on a quest to try to figure out what was wrong and At that time, very little was known about Rett syndrome. And I actually came across Rett and some early literature on communication and Rett syndrome. And when I was trying to figure out 
what could be wrong because her her working diagnosis at that point was autistic like but she wasn't like any other child with autism i'd ever worked with nor was she like the children with autism who were in her classes she was failing to make progress she had very abnormal eegs her neurologist was very concerned about her behavior and any medication that he tried just didn't improve any of her learning or attention. I found in a literature search, found out about Rett syndrome, and I took the info to the neurologist and he said, you know what, you don't want her to have Rett syndrome. It's a really terrible thing. And most individuals with Rett syndrome lose their ability to walk and they usually die before they're 20. And I said, it's not my choice what she has. I just need to find out what's going on so that we can get her the best treatment. And that was in, I would say, the mid-1990s. And so at that point, the outlook was very bleak. But then in 1999, the gene that causes Rett syndrome was found, and I'd read about it, and I pursued genetic testing for her then. And lo and behold, at age 11, she was diagnosed appropriately with Rett syndrome. And then it was as if we had to mourn her disorder all over again. But what we were able to then become was to become part of a community so that we could then work with others to figure out what was ahead. We could interact with families who had a similar diagnosis and also for her therapists they then now had an explanation for her behaviors, and they were then on a quest to find out information on how to help her the best that they could. So it was about 10 years of not actually knowing exactly what was going on. And we actually, she had a lot of genetic testing. They ruled out Angelman syndrome, Fragile X, and other some other disorders. And I had, I kept going back to what I the few articles that were out on Rett syndrome then at that point. Because the first case of Rett syndrome that I think was diagnosed in the U.S. was in the early 1980s. So I was looking for information in the early 90s. And so it was still a very new disorder. And there weren't a lot of people with Rett syndrome that had the right diagnosis here in the U.S. But then by the year 2000, there was a lot more information. And then when the gene was found, then the interest just quadrupled and it just kept, just kept growing. But at the same time, then the literature was still based on older information that actually had a very bleak outlook. And the literature at that point said individuals with Rett syndrome are not capable of communication they are will likely be nonverbal and unable to intentionally communicate for their entire life. And in my work in interacting with many families then who, of, who had daughters with Rett syndrome, I found exactly the opposite, that the parents had figured out how to communicate with their daughters. And I knew that, that my daughter could communicate, not in a typical way, but she was using some rudimentary AAC. She was vocalizing, she was gesturing, and she was working really hard to get her point across. And so I then got involved in doing some research because I, I actually was a PhD student at that time also. And my mentor said, you know what, you know more than Rett syndrome, you know more about Rett syndrome than anybody I know. Why don't you use this as your topic? And so I studied communication in individuals with Rett syndrome, and that got me on this path. Well, you were such an inspiration to have a child with the needs that Lisa had, and for you to even think about pursuing a PhD at that time is so respectable. I mean, it's really hats off to you. And then, thank goodness, you decided to make that your focus because you really have helped so many people with Rett syndrome and so many SLPs help people with Rett syndrome. Yeah. SLPs really do because, well, thank you. I mean, I had a great support system. I do want to say that I've had a really supportive husband and family, extended family to help. And it does take a village to raise a child, especially a child who has disabilities. 
But speech language pathologists are often one of the first individuals to see someone with Rett syndrome because communication is really on the top of parents' lists when you ask them about their concerns for their children. And so it was really important to me to educate fellow SLPs about the features of Rett syndrome and about the potential for communication in Rett syndrome so they could use evidence to guide their practices. Well, and that evidence is so important and the genetic testing is so important. And that's really so encouraging to know that children now can get diagnosed at a much younger age. To imagine that you had 10 years of not knowing it was really hard. What is the average age of diagnosis now? So now I'm encountering girls with Rett syndrome and I'm saying girls, and I want to clarify that males can have Rett syndrome as well. Rett syndrome occurs most frequently in girls because it is an X-linked genetic mutation, but it can occur in males as well. It's just that the incidence is much higher in females. It occurs in approximately one in every 10,000 live female births worldwide. But now because of the advances in knowledge and diagnostic techniques, I'm seeing girls with Rett syndrome diagnosed as early as age two, which is really exciting because they can then join a community that can help support them as they encounter all the different challenges of Rett syndrome because it is a multi-system disorder and you do see challenges in many, many parts of development, not just in communication. And they also then can start communication intervention as soon as possible. One of the key features of Rett syndrome is that most individuals will not gain functional verbal speech. So it's really key that augmentative communication strategies be introduced early. And for most of the individuals, they have significant motor planning problems. One of the key characteristics is inability to use their hands in a functional way, which then of course impacts their ability to interact with their environment. So they often can't feed themselves. They have a lot of difficulty playing with toys. And so they're also then unable to pick up objects that they want or use a direct selection as an access method by pointing to something or touching an icon on a device. So what we have found in in the research is that eye gaze is the most consistent modality that is available. And so helping parents start recognizing eye gaze movements as intentional And then starting with eye gaze with AC, if it's low tech, just starting from a baseline and then expanding. And I I know of some young girls who have high tech eye gaze devices who are three years old and they're able to communicate using their eyes, which is really exciting. Oh, that is exciting. That is great. Can you describe some of the other, well, let's go back to not able to use their hands in a functional way. Can you describe what you mean by that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So one of the characteristics is repetitive, non-functional hand movements. So the classic one is a hand wringing where both hands are brought to midline and there's like a continual rubbing of the fingers or wringing of the fingers. That is a key hallmark of Rett syndrome. The non-functional hand movements can take other forms as well, like hair twirling, hand mouthing. What is really important is that for most individuals with threat, they're unable to modify those hand movements in order to be able to, say, quiet one hand and then use the dominant hand to pick up an object or to isolate a finger and point to an object that they want. So that's often a key characteristic that is, that's part of the diagnostic process. And it's actually one of the the key features and one of the main criteria in Rett syndrome. Regression is another, but non-functional hand movements is one of the key features that we see. And how young do you see the non-functional hand movements? They can appear before the first birthday if there's a regression that occurs. There are some individuals who regress very, very young, 
But it's typical to start seeing this somewhere after the first birthday. What what often parents will say is that the child might have started learning to wave, which you know we start to see around eight months or so, eight to 10 months. They may have developed that skill and then no longer can do it. That's what happened with my daughter. So that's she had a fairly typical pattern. She was waving. She was also saying hi and bye. And she was playing with toys. Like she had a doll. She would stack blocks. And she would also take books and turn pages. And she could do all of those things. But then at about 14 months, she stopped saying hi and bye. And we realized she was quieter. She was still vocal, but she was doing like a repetitive jargon series of sounds that didn't mimic any of the other words that she had had. And we realized that she wasn't saying words anymore. She wasn't growing in her vocabulary. So those non-functional hand movements are usually apparent right around the first birthday or or slightly after. Okay. Okay. And then with the the non-functional hand movements, as well as the regression in speech, would you say that happens like over the course of a few weeks that all of a sudden it stops or is it more like a, a few months or what, what's typical or does is there a, a lot of variability? There's a lot of variability. What we've come to learn as they've sequenced the entire gene, the gene is called MECP2 and it's on the X chromosome, as I said, and it's very key in brain development. And as they've sequenced the whole gene, what they've found is they found a number of different phenotypes or presentations of Rett syndrome. And there's been some research that is aligning the particular mutation within the gene with a particular clinical presentation. So there is a what we now know is there is a wide range of variation in abilities. So there are some individuals who are more severely affected who actually never learn to walk and never begin to speak, are unable to eat by mouth and have to be fed through alternative means like a a G-tube, and then have very, very severe seizures. Scoliosis is also a very common feature. And then at the other end of the continuum, you'll have individuals who remain ambulatory throughout their entire life. So my daughter at 33 is walking, has always walked, She did have scoliosis, but she had surgery, and so she's been able to maintain her ambulation. She can pick up a cup and drink from an open cup and then replace it on the table. Sometimes it spills, but she could do that. She could pick up a spoon with some assistance. So she has some self-feeding skills under supervision. Her seizures are controlled. She actually hasn't had a seizure in like 15 years, and she is vocal. And every once in a while, she'll say something that sounds like a word or a series of words. And there are individuals who actually have more, much more verbal skills than she does. And there are some individuals who have what's called a preserved speech variant, and they are able to speak a series of words or sentences. So the range is pretty wide. So for appropriate diagnosis, There's a clinical criteria that, say, a neurologist or a developmental pediatrician would go through and then do genetic testing to confirm the diagnosis. And that's how how the diagnosis is made. Okay. I want to go back a little bit um, about the preserved speech variant. Can you describe that a little bit more? Because I would wonder if that would be something that would, if someone were not aware of, they might discount Rett syndrome because of the preserved speech. Oh, absolutely. Just like I was discounted so many years ago because my daughter was, as the neurologist said, too high functioning to have Rett syndrome. And because it is a rare disorder, it is likely that an individual could not be diagnosed correctly, especially if they have those more of those preserved behaviors. I know that there are individuals with Rett syndrome who can engage in a conversation, can ask and answer questions. Language skills in these individuals typically are not equivalent to, say, their same age peers, so they do have language impairment tend to have difficulties with like complex syntax, grammar, but many have literacy skills and can read and write. 
The preserved speech group is a smaller group. It's more rare, but as, as we have increasing awareness about what Rett syndrome is and that it can take many different forms that individuals can look very different, we have better diagnosis. What also I should say is there are now centers of excellence around the country. They've been designated as centers of excellence for Rett syndrome by the International Rett syndrome Foundation. And I believe there are at least 15 of them. There might be 17 and a couple just got this distinction recently. And so they are scattered across the country. And so families can go to the International Rett Syndrome Foundation's website, which is rettsyndrome.org, and look for those centers if they suspect Rett syndrome, and they can have access to experts in diagnosis and also in treatment. Well, thank you. And that's a great resource for SLPs as well. Absolutely. What is the process of genetic testing? Is it blood work or is it more extensive? Is it if you suspect Rett syndrome, is it difficult to get the genetic genetic testing done? Could a pediatrician even order it? Like what, what is what is the process? Yeah, sure. It's a blood test, most typically ordered by a pediatric neurologist or a neurodevelopmental pediatrician. In my experience, pediatricians usually will make a referral to a specialist like that for the appropriate diagnosis and and then blood work. And sometimes they'll they'll test for more than one genetic disorder if they're trying to rule things out, because some of some syndromes have very similar presentations or some characteristics overlap. For a while, my daughter's neurologist thought that she could have Angelman syndrome because there are some features of Angelman's and Rhett that overlap. And a young woman that I've worked with in New Jersey for a very long time, had a diagnosis of Angelman's until she had the her blood work done again, and they found the mutation on the MECPT2 gene, and she got the right diagnosis. Okay. So the Angelman syndrome, that, that's a different gene altogether? Yes. Yes. But nonverbal, typically, sometimes unusual motor movements, typically a wide gait, some motor planning problems like we see in Rett syndrome with, say, and just an apraxic component, you know, difficulty generating motor movements that affects most of the body, you need for AEC. So uh, very typical that some of those features will overlap. Okay. Okay. So ordered by a, neurolo- a pediatric neurologist, but it is a blood test. So out of curiosity for SLPs who are listening and maybe some families who are listening from how long is that process taking the blood and from the point you take the blood, how long? Right. Actually, now it's it's really quick. It's like a few weeks, a month. It's not that long. For my daughter back in 2000, it took nine months oh. because they were still sequencing the gene. So every time they found a mutation, they would go back and they would retest other samples that had not they'd not found a positive result in. So we had to wait. But now it's much quicker. So there's much better access. I'm sorry that you had to wait that long, but I'm so pleased to hear that that has improved for other families. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's much quicker now. And so many more neurologists and even P and pediatricians know about the disorder and SLPs do as well. That's what I'm finding. And you know, often as an SLP, families will come to us first because their big concern is the child's not yet talking or, or, or their speech is not as it should be. You know, it's been my experience, like with families with aut- children who end up getting an autism diagnosis, we are often right there in the front line with the family. And I think that's very similar with Rett syndrome as well. Mm-hmm. What Now, you said your daughter was around 14 months. What's the oldest that you've seen someone have that initial regression? Two, eight, two years. Usually it occurs earlier than that. The regression you'll see, it's considered, you know, a neurodevelopmental disorder. So the regression would occur before three years, but it's usually occurring er- much earlier. Okay. Because, and I think it's because, you know, I'm not a neurologist or a geneticist, but what I understand from speaking with those individuals is that the MECP2 gene is uh, codes a number of proteins that are important for brain development. 
and the levels of MECP2 are too low in Rett syndrome. And so you get, as the child gets a little bit older, you just see all of these problems emerge. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So are there any other phenotype characteristics and development that we haven't covered? And also along the lines of development, can you kind of touch upon that this is a developmental disorder and not degenerative because that is confusing because of the regression piece. Right, right. That's such a great point because the old information was that this was a staged disorder that had like four stages. That was normal development, period of regression, then a plateauing, and then a secondary regression, which was considered the degenerative stage which would occur like in adolescence or young adulthood. And the outlook at that point was very dire. And I'm talking about like back in the 1980s, say. But what we now know is it is not a degenerative disorder. So that individuals with Rett syndrome are living well into middle age and beyond. We don't know much about seniors with Rett syndrome. It is likely there are people in the world who are senior citizens who have Rett syndrome who got really good care when they were younger. And so they lived long, but they probably didn't get the right diagnosis. So now we're seeing individuals like my daughter, who's very, very healthy, living well into middle age and then older. But to go back to, say, the key characteristics or what are some of the other things that people will observe, in addition to the hands difficulties with hand skills, communication skills, and many of them have difficulties with ambulation. There are a lot of accompanying or, say, co-occurring supportive characteristics that we see. Respiratory difficulties are very common, and that's often characterized by rapid breathing or periods of breath holding or inhaling air. And as SLPs, we can think about the impact of that on things like feeding and swallowing, And then also on communication. If someone is rapidly breathing over and over again, it's going to be difficult for them to engage with you meaningfully using their eye gaze or their hands because the respiratory difficulties are so overwhelming. And also with feeding and swallowing, it's really a challenge if the respiratory rate is so high. Impaired sleep is very common And so a lot of the individuals with Rett are very tired during the day and they'll have periods of diminished alertness. And we need to be sensitive to that because if we're evaluating someone for communication, we need to figure out, you know, are they in a good state of homeostasis and recognize that they might be tired and because of the fatigue, then they're not going to be able to show you what they're capable of. So we want to be sensitive to that. Scoliosis or kyphosis, so difficulties with the spine, are very common. And if uncorrected, those can affect respiration and then, you know, being able to sit up independently, which then affects your ability to access AAC. Many individuals are small, but not everyone. But a lot of them have difficulty with nutrition and gastrointestinal challenges, So a lot of them have alternative uh, ways of nutrition, like a gastrostomy tube, and they need extra nutritional boosts to stay healthy and alert. And they often have lessened response to pain. And then they'll have what are called, so seizures, I think I mentioned earlier, are very common, but they'll have what are called RET spells that look like seizures, but they're really not. And they seem to be brief periods where there's a diminished level of alertness. And so you as an SLP want to be mindful of that so that you give your your student or your client time to come back to the level of awareness so they're in a good level of homeostasis so that they can interact to the best of their ability. Now, do some individuals have seizures as well as RET spells? Yes, yes. And that can be very challenging to diagnose. So as part of their workups, they usually have EEGs, and then many of them have seizures that are uncontrolled, even if they are on seizure medications. So it can be very, very challenging for them also. My daughter right now, as I said earlier, has very good seizure control, 
but there are girls who will have multiple seizures in a day. And so it's, it's really important for us as clinicians to understand their seizure patterns, again, so that we're not making assessments about their lack of ability to do something without considering what's going on with them neurologically. That's a very good point. Well, let's dive into SLPs working with individuals with Rett syndrome and their families. So there are centers of excellence throughout the United States. Tell me again how many there are. Yeah, there are at least 15. There might be 17 now. The best place to look at that is the rettsyndrome.org website and just type in centers of excellence. They're on their website and they're all there and along with contact information. And they're not in every state, of course, but they are in many regions of the U.S. And often what they'll do is they'll see individuals for, say, annual workups, and they'll develop treatment plans that then can be taken and carried out by local a local care team, which would include an SLP. Many of the centers have access to augmentative communication specialists or assistive technology folks who can help the families at least get an AAC assessment or get some direction as to how to proceed with getting their loved one the best possible communication intervention program started for them. Well, the, what, what great resources. What, when were those first started? After the genetic testing? Yes, I think that's when they were designated. There were centers around the time the gene was found. There were a couple of centers where specialists in neurology were studying Rett syndrome. And so one of those was Baylor in Texas, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and then Johns Hopkins up in Maryland, which is where we went because I was living in the Northeast then. But then as awareness grew and recognition of the numbers of people with Rett syndrome grew, and then of course, as the International Rett Syndrome Foundation, which is based here in the U.S., grew, there was just a higher demand. And of course, once the gene was found, there was a lot of interest then, of course, in, in then treatments and therapies. So I'm interested in rehabilitation and as are, you know, my fellow SLPs, but there was a huge interest in either medications that can treat some of the symptoms for Rett syndrome, and then eventual gene therapy. And so there's been a lot of interest in that. And there's actually some medications that are being studied. Uh, There's one that's right now under FDA analysis, and there's a lot of excitement that perhaps the first treatment for Rett syndrome is going to be approved sometime in the very near future. We're very hopeful for that. And then there's also gene therapy trials that are underway across the world right now. So there's a lot of interest in these treatments. But then as rehab professionals, we need to be aware of those and say, okay, you know, hopefully the neurology and the system in the body is going to be better so that the individual threat can then better take in information and and put it out there. So it's going to be up to us to help them maximize their potential so that they can really express themselves to the best of their ability and live the highest quality of life possible. Absolutely. Well, there is reason to be hopeful. Okay. So let's talk about for SLPs, obviously the people who are SLPs who are working at these centers of excellence are experts in Rett syndrome. But for those SLPs who are working with individuals and families who come back from a center of excellence with a a plan of care and therapy goals, can we talk to those SLPs and talk about what is the best way to work with people and families? Yes, because that's that's most of the, the SLPs who are working with people with Rett syndrome Many SLPs who I've encountered have one person with Rett syndrome on their caseload, and these caseloads are large. And I know that it's hard to take the time to to find out where can I find the best evidence to help this particular child, because I know SLPs, that's what they want to do. So what I was able to do is work with some colleagues on a project, because we, myself and three other colleagues had this goal that we would 
get information out there to SLPs and other communication professionals across the world so that they could have access to the information they needed. So that's how the communication guidelines for Rett syndrome were born. It was part of a grant-funded project that was a multi-year effort and a multi-country effort. And we now have these guidelines. So it's a pamphlet. It's a handbook. It's about 100 pages. And it's available from rettsyndrome.org as a downloadable PDF or a handbook. And what this is, it's an eight-chapter handbook that provides the best information for therapists, teachers, families on how to assess individuals with Rett syndrome and how to develop intervention plans. And we, the way we've written it is it's very user-friendly. So if you've never interacted with a person with Rett syndrome before, we begin by talking about best practices for how to approach the person with Rett syndrome. We have a chapter that's kind of a primer on Rett syndrome. We talk about the features of Rett, like these repetitive hand mov- movements or the respiratory issues or the apraxia that we see essentially across the whole body. And we talk about how those features impact communication so that an SLP is aware then how to approach the person with RET and to expect that these could occur so that they can recognize them and then recognize how to modify their intervention. We talk about approaching people with Rett syndrome from a perspective of competence, of believing that every person is capable of intentional communication and respecting every potential modality that they can use for communication, which includes eye gaze, body movements, gestures, vocalizations, et cetera, anything that they do. We also have tips on how to work with people with Rett syndrome, like it can, be, it can be challenging to work with someone who has difficulty with regulation. As I said earlier, you know, there are these RET spells. So you might have someone who looks like they're falling asleep or they're not really paying attention. So we have this whole guide on recognizing when someone is either overstimulated or understimulated and how to get them back to homeostasis so that they're in the best way that they can be for them to work with you on communication. And then we talk about best practices for assessment. So using a holistic assessment approach, including the person with threat, as well as, as well as all of their communication partners, people who are relevant in their life, trying to assess them in a number of situations so that you get their best possible communication looking at all these different modalities that I mentioned earlier and finding out what these behaviors mean. How do these communication partners interpret these behaviors? We talk about using dynamic assessment where teach a skill or you assess a skill, you see how, how it's, how someone can do something like you ask them to identify objects And then you see what challenges they're having, and then you provide them with strategies or cues to carry out that task, and then you try it again so that you can see what kind of supports they need. We recommend using the ICF model for assessment where you look at the whole person. You look at what are the environmental barriers, what are the the benefits, you know, how do they do best in certain environments. And then we have suggestions on how to modify standardized tests so that you can, because we understand a lot of SLPs work under those guidelines where they have to give a standardized test and, you know, how to modify them. And then we also talk about assessments that can give you a good idea about how someone is functioning in their everyday environment. And we have an appendix in the back of the guidelines where we list tools that SLPs can use. And we have a number of websites in the document as well. And then we conclude by talking about intervention and how to get started on AAC. And this is where we've gotten feedback from groups that are not just specifically interested in Rett syndrome, where we've gotten feedback from other 
people who have complex communication disorders other than Rett syndrome, like autism or angel man syndrome or down syndrome, where we provide strategies on how to get started in AC. And these don't have to just be applied to people with Rett syndrome. So if you've got a complex caseload, we've got some strategies for you on say how to start with figuring out how someone lets you know something with yes and no. It is sometimes called the best yes. How does someone tell you yes? And you find out from the communication partners and you go with that. And then we talk about how to develop eye gaze. We talk about the benefit of using a robust vocabulary, even for someone who's very young, giving them lots of opportunity to explore And then the need to always have a non-electronic low-tech backup if you go with a high-tech system such as an iGaze system. Everybody needs a backup because things can go wrong and you also can't use iGaze in the pool or sometimes in the car. So you always want to have someone have the opportunity to communicate in as many contexts as possible. And you also might have people who just can't have access to high-tech devices. These guidelines were written to be used by anybody all over the world. They've already been translated into seven languages, and we've had thousands of downloads all over the world, and we've got more translations in process. Well, that's very exciting. And I like how you also cover the low tech because we talked earlier before we when we were doing our tech check that there are many places in the world who where the high tech devices are just not accessible. So as an international organization focusing on the low tech that are accessible to everyone, is it okay if we talk about eye gaze? So let's say you're an you're an SLP working in a school or early intervention. And let's say we have a kindergartner who does not have a consistent eye gaze and you want to introduce an AAC device. So you have to establish that eye gaze first. So what would your recommendations be to that SLP? So if the, per, if the SLP does have access to electronic eye gaze, child is never too young to start. And I would expect that almost everyone I'm going to introduce AAC to is going to be inconsistent, at least in the beginning. So don't let inconsistency stop you. Exactly. I've seen many people not been given access to AAC because someone was waiting for them to hit a particular criteria for a skill. And then what we're actually doing is... We're holding these children to an artificial standard that is higher than we would hold to a typically developing child. You don't withhold a book from a a young non-reader until they show you that they have signs of literacy awareness or print awareness. We just give it to them, you know, as soon as we can. So expect inconsistency and allow the child to explore. There are a number of companies that have eye gaze now. Toby Dynavox is one, Pranky Romics, Otillo, a smart box. There are a lot of vendors. Some of the these vendors will have loaner programs. We work in my office with Toby Dynavox very frequently. This is not an endorsement of Toby, but we are able to get eye gaze devices on loan for a particular period of time. And I'm finding that having that access available to a child is a wonderful tool. And you can see them building their awareness and their skill over time, but they do need the gift of time. We talk in the guidelines that, you know, having someone have access to a trial device for several months is really what is ideal because they have to try it in a number of situations. But if you're in a kindergarten and you don't have that access, then what I would do is I would begin with acknowledging what the child is looking at. And just as you would an infant when you're developing joint attention and that joint reference. So if you see them looking at something, acknowledge that, acknowledge their interest. Don't assume, don't treat those eye gaze movements as random, treat them as intentional, 
because it is that feedback that we give to children that then helps reinforce that behavior, just like with a typically developing child. That makes sense. Excellent point. And then if you're in a, in a school system, you need to access the AAC resources. Yes. So, you know, hopefully you have access to an assistive technology person in your district. It usually is not a good use of time to spend time on development of oral speech. If they vocalize, yes, acknowledge that, but it's usually not a good use of time to develop oral speech or to work on direct selection using hands. Assess the eye gaze modality and try to see if you can establish that non-electronically as well as electronically. So using an eye gaze strip, using yes, no, you could just start simply with yes, no cards, hold up objects. Some people still use an e-tran, which is kind of an old fashioned kind. I don't know if that's a familiar term to you. We hold something up and it's like a plexiglass and there's objects on there and a person looks differentially. There's a great technique called partner assisted scanning which you can start where you show a child a series of pictures or objects and you and you say this is I've got three choices for you. I've got the puzzle, I've got the popper and I've got the music. So let's see which one you want. Do you want the puzzle? And then you wait. Because what I haven't said yet and I really need to say this is that there is often prolonged wait time for a number of these individuals. We've got information that says that some of them take as long as 30 seconds to generate a response. So you wanna give the child lots of time. So you say, do you want the puzzle? If you want it, look at the puzzle. If you do, and maybe that you can say to the child, if you don't want it, look away. Or you, you know of a way that the child responds. On the International Rett Syndrome Foundation's Facebook page, We've done a lot of Facebook Lives where we've talked about communication and we've got lots of videos there for people to see, to look about how to recognize behavior, intentional behavior in Rett syndrome. And we also have done a series of webinars that are available on the foundation's YouTube channel where I talk about the guidelines. I've got a series of three webinars. I've got videos in each one looking at how you can read intentional communication and how you can develop it. Excellent resources. Well, thank you for sharing those. That that is appreciated. Did you put those in the the handout that's available for people on speechtherapypd.com? Yes. In the handout, there's the name of the website and there's a QR code. And if you scan that, it takes you right to that webpage where it gives you all the resources for communication professionals. And you can follow right on that page. It'll take you right to those YouTube videos. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. All right. So is there anything else that you want to talk about? I know there are eight chapters and we only have, you know, an hour. So what what else would you like to tell us about the communication guidelines? We talk about AAC assessment. AAC is still kind of a newer part of our field. And I've been in academia for a while and I find that unfortunately a lot of SLPs don't get a lot of hands-on experience in their graduate programs with augmentative communication. Often they have an AAC course and their professor do their best to expose them to devices and how to get started with AAC. But I find that when I talk to people who are out in the field who only have a few AAC clients or students that they really feel kind of lost about how to get started and how to how to build. If you know, say you set somebody up with a good yes, like you figure out, okay, this person, if I say, you know, should we turn your favorite song on now? And they vocalize, huh? Or I've got a little girl I work with who does like a click with her tongue. That's her yes. I found that out from her mom and I said, does she let you know yes or no? And mom was like, oh yeah. This is it. She looks away or she cries for no and she tongue clicks for yes. And so, you know, once you've got that going, then where do you go from there? You know, how do you 
build that vocabulary. And so we go into details on that and we have examples of page sets and how to set up different page sets. And we have resources that you can go to for free access to sets of vocabulary. So I think the guidelines are great for AAC. All right. Okay. So the international guidelines are available through the foundation. And you did say that there, because I was so lucky to actually see them in person at ASHA. So you did say that the handbook is also available. How would one go about getting a good old fashioned handbook? Yeah, the handbook, lots of people love the handbook and it costs $10. It's and that that's available from the foundation's website on that same page. So you can either do a PDF download for $10 or you can purchase the print version for $10 and it's just really covering their cost of printing and and postage. So that's how to get them. Okay, thank you. All right, well, we have a little more time left. This is really a great question because it's exciting that we, that this question is a valid question. So I'm going to ask it and you'll understand why I said that. What are the challenges for adults and seniors with Rett syndrome to be engaged and healthy and plan for the future? And that is, that's an exciting question because that is where we are in 2023. People are living longer into midlife and beyond but with that comes challenges. So can you touch upon some of those challenges? Yes, absolutely. And I'm kind of living a little of, of that now, especially as I look to the future. So the International Rett Syndrome Foundation has, they've always cared for individuals and their families across the lifespan. But I believe that recently they've recognized the need to help families address the needs of older people with Rett syndrome. And they've recently done a series of webinars and all their webinars are free and you can find them on their YouTube channel. And I think there was a series of three webinars on how to deal with an aging person with Rett syndrome. So I direct you again to their YouTube channel or to their website where you can just type in aging and it'll it'll get you to those webinars. And they talk a lot about, first of all, what are the funding options? You know, how do you make sure that somebody has a, an appropriate financial plan to live so that they, they can live well? And fortunately here in the U.S., every state is providing Medicaid to adults and they often have waivers or day programs where they can stay engaged. My daughter has a waiver here in Georgia, which enables her to go to yoga every week. She goes to physical therapy. She goes to a fellowship program at a church. I mean, she's actually out in the community just about every day. And we've been able to get information on planning for the future thinking about how is she going to live when we can no longer care for her, which is a very challenging question for families. Uh, But there are more and more resources that are available. So I would direct you to that webinar because I was actually one of the parents on one of these webinars talking about what we're thinking about doing. But Doctors now are understanding how to treat individuals with developmental disabilities well into middle age and senior years, and that's a fairly new phenomenon. And so I think we're all growing and learning together. But it's important to keep people engaged and interactive, and there is there is no ceiling on learning or on their abilities. Not only are there not ceilings on their abilities, but after the initial regression, there can be a plateau and then learning throughout their lifespan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. We used to think that they would lose all their skills and have an early mortality. There still is an, a risk of increased mortality compared to their same age, typically developing peers, but we actually see individuals benefiting from physical and occupational therapy as they age. My daughter can now drink from a cup, pick it up, drink, put it down, open a door. She couldn't do that when she was younger. She can turn on a faucet. These are skills she's learned in her teen and early adult years. and. 
I was talking with one of my colleagues who's in the United Kingdom about a family who found out about our communication guidelines, and they had a daughter who was, I believe, 30, who had never had speech therapy in her life. And the family said, is my daughter too old to learn how to communicate? And my colleague said, no. And this family, for the first time using information from the guidelines, was able to establish a good yes-no response from her. And then it kind of opened. So now it just like opens all the possibilities, right? Because everyone she interacts with can now will now look at her with fresh eyes as capable of so much more, recognizing, wait a minute, she does understand. So that's such a beautiful thing. So there's no age limit on communicating more, learning how to communicate or advancing in your skills. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. So hard to imagine going through life 30 years without a yes, no, and then finally getting it at in your 30s. So thank you so much for writing these guidelines and and working with the International Association to get them available internationally. So good work. Good work. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's, as I said at the beginning, my passion. And my goal is that every SLP in the U.S., because I'm the I'm the U.S. rep on this project, knows what Rett syndrome is and knows where to go to find information on Rett syndrome should they find themselves having a person, a girl or a boy, with Rett syndrome on their caseload. Well, you are achieving that goal and we are so happy to help you achieve that goal by having you on our our podcast. We have a couple more minutes before we go. Thank you for sharing that case study. Are there any other examples that you would like to share any other case studies of of any age? Well, since that was someone, uh, you know, in their 30s, I'm currently working with someone very young. Right now she's 3 years old. She has red syndrome and just got an eye gaze device. And her mother's coming to us for therapy now saying, I believe that she understands. I believe she communicates with her eyes, but I need help on how to figure out how to use this with her. And that that's so key because what I see so often is that folks will get an AC device and then they just don't the family just can't figure out how to progress. So we're we're starting very simply with her and taking any activations that she does with her eyes as intentional. And it's kind of, you could just see the shift in the thinking. Mom's a little scared. You know, she's been through this, you know, terrible diagnosis and medical problems with her daughter and she's scared. But this shift in her thinking that, wow, Maybe she can tell me what she thinks. Maybe she can tell me what's wrong when she's crying. Like the possibilities are just so, so great. So that's somebody I have a lot of excitement about. Oh, that is exciting. Yeah, you don't know where this is going to go and to know that the possibilities are are endless, really. We do have a few questions. So thank you, participants, for asking questions. Let's go to those. This person says that they are working with a newly diagnosed child with Fox G1 syndrome, and it sounds very similar. Yes. Yes. Fox G1 is very similar. Fox G1, CDKL5, MECP2 duplication syndrome, and Rett syndrome all are very similar. They have very similar characteristics. And so the guidelines would be very applicable to that child. Excellent. Okay. We have a few questions. Again, can you tell people about the website for the $10 handbook or and also where to get the handbook in different languages. Okay, so the handbook is available in English only on the retsyndrome.org website and that can be so you go to retsyndrome.org and they have a menu there and you'll see like a scrolling I'm not sure what you call it on the main page where they talk about for information for families and you'll be able to get to communication there. You can also put communication in their search bar or search in Google for communication professionals, Rett syndrome, and that'll take you to that page. That is the English language only version. 
The other languages, the translations have been sponsored across the world by individual associations, volunteer associations by certain countries. So the French version was sponsored by the French Parent Association. So we've got French, we've got like seven languages, French, Spanish, German, lots of languages. So if you are interested in another one of the translations, or if you want to find out if it's available, you can email me at tbartolotta at bretsyndrome.org, and I can give you the contact information so that you can get the translation. Thank you. Okay. And then we have another question here. Do SLPs from the Centers of Excellence do Zoom calls with SLPs who currently work with the child to teach us how to use eye gaze devices? So we would hope that everybody would have that ability to do that. I can't speak for them all because just like every other SLP, their schedules are so full. That would be ideal. I'm not sure if everybody in each center has that bandwidth. Our goal is as we work on the dissemination of the guidelines and the implementation across the U.S., is that every person who goes to a center of excellence is going to be have access to a, a really good SLP right there, or if not, they can be given a name of a person who contact information they can follow up with. The one thing that I haven't mentioned, if I have a moment that I could mention, is that if you are interested in getting more information about communication and Rett syndrome, the webpage I've been directing you to has information on three free webinars that we offer that are based on the guidelines. They're each about one hour long. And if you take them, they're free. You get a certificate, a professional development certificate you can use for a continuing ed unit. After you take each webinar and you'd have to take a little quiz and you get these certificates, after you take all three, you can be invited to participate in a moderated forum that the foundation is hosting. And we have 10 experts in communication who are available to problem solve with you. So you can post a question about a child you're working with. And we've got this great team. They can help walk you through and help you advance that person wherever they are. And we've got experts on special ed, literacy, SLPAC, lots of really good people. That sounds like an excellent program. Great resources. Well, thank you so much. We're we're almost we're a little bit past time, but but you had so many good things to say. I also want to tell you we have a lot of comments from our audience saying our participants saying thank you, thank you, thank you very much, thank you. This was inspirational and so informative. So, before you go, we had talked about this, and I think it's so important. So we're going to go over a little bit. What is one piece of advice that you would give to parents with a child with a new diagnosis of Rett syndrome? To believe in the possibility that their child will do well, that their child will be okay, and that they will be okay, and that they should join a group like the International Rett Syndrome Foundation because they will then have access to other people, families who have walked this path and are a little bit ahead, and they can help them and help them prepare for what might be coming. And they'll also have access to information so they can be the best advocates for their child and so that they can help work with their team at their school or their day program to provide their child with the best education and access to services. The best thing for us was to get the right diagnosis, even though it was like grieving the loss of our our typical daughter all over again. But we were then prepared for what was coming and we were able to be part of a community. And there is so much strength and and beauty in that. So important. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And that is excellent advice. And I know parents and SLPs alike will find it very helpful and all of these wonderful resources. So we we truly appreciate you sharing your perspective as an SLP and all the research that you have done throughout the years, and especially sharing your perspective as a parent that's so important and so inspirational. So thank you so much. I'm so happy that I walked by your table at ASHA. <laughs> you never know what's going to, who you're going to meet, right? <laughs> right, right. I am so happy too. So thank you so much. And 
I've seen some of these thank yous come across and I, I just, your audience has been so positive and so supportive and um, hung in for this whole long time. So I greatly appreciate that. Well, we love our audience. So yes, thank you to everyone listening tonight and everyone listening in the future. As a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules by the end of the day today. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.